be seated, and as you're taking your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Kids through fourth grade, you guys are dismissed to your classes, and as we get things set up here, uh, we will be in Romans chapter 12, verses, verse 2. There's an outline in your, um, in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Um, just to give you a, a little hint, there are a couple lists of things I'll be giving you, so if you liked room and space, you might want to leave some room and space. If you don't, have fun. It's interesting what a year will do. It's interesting how time marches on. It's interesting how from one year to the next you have certain beliefs and things that you have from one year to the next. But I would have to say that last year at this time, if you could go all the way back to last year at this time, there's probably going to be four things that I'm going to say right now that most of you had very little opinion about. That many of you probably now have an opinion and are able to uh, share that opinion with others. So here are four things last year at this time that you probably had very little opinion about. Number one would be masks. Number two would be how viruses spread. Number three would be what is a peaceful protest? And number four is which elderly white male should be running our country? And now we have these opinions, but before a year ago, most of you probably had no opinion about that whatsoever, right? And then is it interesting how our our opinions have changed. Some of us, even if you don't like talking about it, even have an idea of what you think about them, right? So I have a question for you. How many of you, and now, I, we didn't raise our hands in the last service, so I won't make you raise your hand this time so we don't get too wild and crazy, but here's the question for you. You can raise your hand mentally or you can raise your hand physically. I don't mind. How many of you think the media has influenced a culture over this past year? All right. I, I, we would say without a doubt it has, right? So let me ask another question. How many of you think that you've been influenced by the media over this past year? Because we all like to say it's influenced everybody else, but many times when it comes home to me, we go, well, I was not influenced the same way everybody else is. Somehow you're the, you know, the island in the midst of all of the mess. It's the same reason why the same people get voted back into office year after year, because everybody else is corrupt, but the guy I'm voting for is not, even if he's been part of the same system year in and year out. The world has been continually impacting us and influencing us. Pastor Chuck talked about this weeks ago, and he used these two phrases, that God has called us to live biblically in an anti-biblical world. All right, and so there's an anti-biblical way of thinking that we've been called to live biblically in. And so the question that's in front of us is how do we live the Christian walk in an anti-biblical world? Because a biblical world way of thinking and an anti-biblical way of thinking do not mesh together. And since the world, as we've talked about this, has an anti-biblical way of thinking, if you're going to live biblically, you're going to be like a salmon swimming upstream against the flow of the world. What does that look like, and how does that play out is what we're going to be talking about today, because we're right in the middle of worship plus two, worship, growth, and service, and we're in the growth part. So if we don't understand what's the challenges when we're growing, what we're up against when we grow, we will not be under, able to understand how we should live. No different than if you're going to plant a tomato, you should have an idea of what are the things that are going to stop the tomato from growing well. 
All right, are there bugs, are there insects? What do we need to do? How do I stop the weeds? And I better know the difference between a weed and a tomato plant, or I'm gonna have some problems going along the way. And so as we think through these things, we need to start learning and asking ourselves: is how does a Christian live biblically? So that's why our title for this sermon is Christian Living, and we're back in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and to give us a little background of this is Romans chapter 1 through 11 are basically saying, here's the gospel, here's the beautiful gospel of God. Romans 11 ends with Paul's great crescendo of, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God and how beautiful the gospel is. Then he turns the corner in 12 and says, in light of the gospel, here's how we live, that famous Francis Schaeffer line, how then shall we live, is basically what Paul's going to be writing now, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is now practical Christian living in light of the gospel. And so, we come to ourselves here and we say, if I struggle with this, if I struggle with what does it look like to live practically speaking in an anti-biblical world, how am I then supposed to follow all of the other commands of teaching the next generation how to live? Because if I'm going to struggle with it, and I'm going to, if we want to call it, struggle and barely make it each day, how do I help someone else? Because the number rule, one rule of thumb in teaching is you can't teach what you don't know. And that's why we hope our teachers know more than what the student is going so they can teach. And so if one of the things that all of us, not just parents, but all of us have been called to teach the next generation, what, it, what does it mean to live biblically in an anti-biblical world? We need to first know that ourselves well so we're able to point other people how to live biblically as well. So uh, point number one, we'll read it here, uh, Romans chapter 12. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So point number one, do not be conformed to this world. So here we see that the Christian walk and conformity to God is going to go against the world's way of thinking. And so as we walk through this, we have to make sure we're clear to understand that there's two different categories here, those who are being conformed to the world and those who are being transformed by the word. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be conformed to this world? Because we use phrases and we use terms. And just last night I learned, which I still haven't verified this, but if someone said it and it sounded good, I'm like, okay, we'll go with it. I was told that every, if you were to take all of the definitions of every word in the English dictionary, there's roughly 3.5 definitions for each word. All right, so like the example, if I were to use the word time, there's multiple definitions for what time is, okay? So that is why words mean things. You following that? And you have to make sure you understand when a word is used, what does it mean? Okay, you just can't use a word and just change its meaning halfway through. Words have meaning. And so when we think about what does it mean to be conformed to this world, there's two things that help us understand this. Number one, when it talks about this, is there's the idea of molding. When you think of the idea of being conformed to this world, there's an idea of molding. And um, actually, Allison, can you throw me that real quick? So my daughter, yeah, thank you. So my daughter brought this up in between church, and we didn't have it at home, so I still don't know where this came from. But what this is, is there's a mold that you squeeze a substance that can be manipulated into this mold. And so the mold has already been decided of what it's supposed to look like, and I, 
I don't even know what this is. But some type of thing that is supposed to look like, and as you take a substance that is able to be manipulated, you push it into the mold. And so the world has a way of thinking that is already predetermined what it wants a person to be like, so you need to find something that you can manipulate and push it into that line of thinking. Then we get to the second concept. Good luck. Hey, good catch. We get to the second part, is shaping. So when you shape something, you have an idea of what you want, but when something goes out of whack, you're able to bring it back in, much like a potter with clay. When something goes off, you just bring it back in. So one is a preconceived notion, the idea of molding is a preconceived motion, a form that we're just going to shove you into. And another one when you think of shaping is when something goes a little bit haywire over here, we're going to do what it takes to bring it back in. Because we have, it's the same concept, but a little bit different angle, molding and shaping. So when we think about the idea of being conformed to this world when it comes to Christi Christians, how are Christians being tempted to be formed and shaped by the world's way of thinking? Well, let's start from the very beginning. In order to be formed and shaped by the world's thinking, if you're a Christian, the world is trying to shape your outer actions, even though inside is different, because a Christian is different than the world. So if the world presses against, they're trying to say, we want to change the external to, to act and to talk and to sound like something the internal is not. You go to another concept of this as well, is when you think of the idea of, of being conformed, it has a passive idea to it. Just like that putty, I would be passively forming it into a mold. The same thing is happening in our world. Because if you're conformed to this world, that's something that you are allowing the world to do to you. You are allowing the world's way of thinking to start to infiltrate your way of thinking. If you're a Christian thinking biblically, you're allowing anti-biblical thinking to seep in. And we ask ourselves, well, how is this done? There's two main ways this is done. Number one, the main way that this is done is through the arts. What I mean by that is so you have the psychologists in their ivory palaces that are teaching, that are learning how to think. You know, the ones that are, I would call them contemplating their navels, right? And you have that group there. And how do you get this concept down to the average guy? Well, the way you do that is through the arts. They used to do it through paintings. And then when paintings weren't enough, as we got more and better technology, we created stories and film to get from here down to the average person. And if you were to even take a study of the arts and how they have gone from where they were to where they are now, if you have a concept, one of the best ways to do it is create a TV show about it or to create a movie. And your TV shows and your movies are impacting and influencing you to think a certain way. Things that at one time were no longer acceptable, well, what we do is we put it on TV and we make a series about it and before you know it, it becomes normal because you've watched it over and over and over again and now something that was shocking is no longer shocking and you go in the second way is through education because whoever is educating is the one that's controlling the thought and I'll give you an example of that for a moment but there's a quote that I came across by a guy named Albert Moeller on the briefing on the briefing um, his little catch line is a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview that he says every day he records these in the morning, and there's a little app if you ever want to get it to just walk through what's happening. And one of the things that he said on Friday, in the morning when I was listening to it, he was talking about education. He said, education is never value neutral. 
It is never value neutral. It cannot be, it never is. Education is always the result. At least the intended transfer of ideas, ideology, and a worldview from someone to someone else. Now, I wanna give you a short little example of when I had the ability to, to uh, teach. Um, one of the ways that you'll see this play out, pretty simple. So uh, I had the ability to teach Algebra 1, and at the end of an Algebra class, you always give the homework assignment. And so the first week or two, after I would give the homework assignment, I would say, you know, you have questions 1 through 15 for homework, and you'd hear, uh, and just because my little cynical nature, after two weeks of hearing the, uh, after the assignment would be given, I said, let's stop, because I was able to teach in a Christian school. I said, remember, the Lord tells us in everything to do with a good attitude, right? Without murmuring or complaining, and you're complaining. So, here's what we're gonna do. Whenever I say the assignment, you're gonna say, thank you, Mr. Yorgi, may we please have some more? <laughs> and so, they looked at me like, yeah, right, and I said, well, if you don't say it, you may have some more. And so the, the next day they came in, I gave them the assignment and the moaning happened and there was no one said anything. And so I gave them two more problems. And they were like, oh, he really means this. So then the next day they came in and they, they were looking at each other, we don't want two more homework assignments. So the next day they said it really with excitement thinking that's what I wanted. And I said, no, 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 no. That's excessive celebration. We're going to say this in a monotone voice lest we get carried away. And so day in, day out for a whole year, the algebra students, every time I gave them the homework, would say, thank you, Mr. Yorgi, may we please have some more? And I would go, oh, thanks for asking, but no, not for today. And that was just, we said it over and over again. Now, I had the privilege of seeing some of these kids again at a wedding that I was able to do, and one of them came up and they said, you know how many stinking times in my mind, whenever there's something hard or I don't want to do it, goes through my mind is, thank you, Mr. Yorgi, may we please have some more? But just in that small little way, I was able to impact them. And we have a little time because I was short in the first service. I'm going to give you one more example. When things would move quickly in the classroom, and they were like, whoa, we're, the period's almost over. And I'd be like, yeah, we need to get moving. I would always say expression that, that I enjoy twisting things just to make sure they're paying attention. And I would say, you're right. Time's fun when you're having flies. All right? And they'd look at me like, I don't think it goes that way. But we would say that over and over and over again. And this girl one day, after doing this for year in and year out, the kids would be in the classroom. She was at a ballet um, time, and one of the girls goes, whoa, time went fast. And she said, yeah, you're right, time's fun when you're having flies. And everybody just looked at her like, you're weird. And then in her mind was like, well, that's normal in Mr. Yorgi's class, but it's not out here. And do you see how in just small little ways, as a teacher, I was able to help shape or twist, if you want to call it, their, their worldview of how they thought things. Even to the point where it was funny in the classroom, but then when she hopped out to the ballet class, it didn't work so well, all right? Again, we need to make sure we understand. When we listen to things, when our children go off to, it doesn't matter where they're going off to, they are being educated by a worldview that is molding and shaping them. And as they go off and as they interact, as parents and other people interacting with kids, are we directing them to the things of God or are we directing them somewhere else? Because as we walk through this, you'll start to see how each one of us plays a massive role in this understanding of how do we, not just ourselves, but how do others 
How do we point others to not be conformed to this world? Because now it's a time to get as practical as we can. Because remember, when the world's way of thinking comes against and, uh, the biblical thinking, this is what the world is expecting now out of us. It's total acceptance and total approval or isolation. The day where you could kind of have a neutral ground on some of these things is no longer in front of us. I would say it was never there to begin with. We just were stooped into a daze of thinking you could be kind of neutral on something. But now as, as the time marches on, as Revelation tells us, it's going to get more and more difficult until the Lord's return. The world is demanding total acceptance and total approval, or we isolate. So one of the ways it does that is it tries to determine, say we want to determine what is right and wrong. The world is going to come at us and say, we want to determine what is right and wrong. And so there are four ways that someone can determine right or wrong. Now, I'm, going to, I'm trying to draw big, big brush strokes here, so I'm going to summarize some of these things. And so how do you determine what is right or wrong? There's four ways that this happens. Number one, it's through naturalism. All right, and I'll explain what naturalism means here in a second. Naturalism means this. What is natural is good. What is unnatural is bad. So what is natural is good, what is unnatural is bad. And so each one of us should do whatever comes naturally to us. So if it comes naturally for you, an individual, to do this, whatever this is, then it's right for you. If it feels unnatural for you to do this, then it must not be right. That's one way of doing it. It's called naturalism. Number two, another way of doing this would be through the concept of hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. So a hedonistic understanding of right or wrong would be if it feels right, you do it. I tried to figure out who coined this phrase, which I'm about ready to tell you, and every time I look through it, it's in so many songs that I don't even know who coined it first. But the phrase we hear in our world is, how could it be wrong if it feels so right? So as long as my pleasure is okay, so as long as I had fun, it must mean that is now right. A third way of doing is called the herd rule. The herd rule is the majority opinion is correct. Uh, and I would even add what's happening now too in our world, it's not necessarily the majority opinion, it's the loudest opinion. So whoever shouts louder must be correct. Or you go back to the majority opinion, as long as 51% think it's okay, then it must be okay, and so we're left with going, how do we even determine what is right or wrong? It's now just by the herd. So wherever the herd goes must be okay. So the way these three things play out in our society and in our, in our world is here's what we're stuck for. Because we live, remember we live in this world. We don't not live in this world. We live in this world. And so when we go and we walk and we talk and we walk all around this world, we know at times there are things that are the right thing to say in that setting, but they're not correct. So I know if I speak this right now, this is gonna get me in trouble. So I say something and I change what I say because it's acceptable here but would not be acceptable somewhere else or may not even be right. And so we're left with this struggle because it's not, it's not correct but it, over here it's the right thing to say at that moment. And you see where this starts to, to impact our thinking. So let me get to the last one here, the biblical response. The biblical response is simple. God's word tells me what is right or what is wrong. 
Uh, I remember growing up, there was a simple little song that we used to sing all the time. It was talking about how to live the Christian walk, and it was as simple as could be. It would say, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? Trust and obey, right? Because guess what's going to happen? There's going to be things that are going to come naturally to me that I should not be doing. There's going to be some things that everybody else is doing doesn't make it right. But if we allow these three things here to govern us, we're not thinking biblically. I want to take a moment here to show you that this is not something new. Because sadly, because we have lived our lives, most of us lived our lives in America, we start to forget that actually sin has been happening for a very, very long time. And we all of a sudden just think that somehow, oh, can you believe the world's sinful? Go, yeah, we can. Genesis 3 tells us that, all right? And so let's take a moment here and look at Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn in your Bibles, that would be great, and just see the text that we have in front of us. Because this push against these things that we just talked about come from the temptation in the garden. So the serpent is going to say to the woman, after God had told them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of this, you will surely die. The serpent comes in, and the first ground of this temptation, the first thing he is asking is, you see this, is you will not surely die. God's a liar. He doesn't really know what's best for you. This sentence, this statement here is striking at the knowledge of what is true. Sin strikes at the knowledge of what is true. Is God or is there another way? Is it God or is it this way of thinking? The sin in the garden struck at the knowledge of the foundation of what is true. The second thing we're going to see as you go further because he's going to start questioning. For God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes will be open and we're going to go to this one next. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The second temptation is going to strike at what is right. You determine what is right. You're going to know good and evil. You determine it. Don't let God determine it. You're going to be determining it. You will determine what is true. You're going to determine what is right. And then that sin temptation that is going to strike even at the end is this one here. It's going to strike at identity. You'll be like God. Sin and its way of conforming is continually pressing us to try to say, listen, this is the sin's way of tempting us. You determine what is right for you because who knows you better than you, right? You make your own truth. And then guess what? When you start doing all of that, it's because you are autonomous in control of it all. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. But we so start to drink that in and we start to think that that's going to impact us and affect us and it starts to impact us and affect us in ways we're, we don't even understand. I came across an article recently that sums this all up. Tim Chalice in an article that he wrote said that there's four themes that are, pushing, that are being pushed by the media on the majority. And these are these four themes that are pressing upon us as believers in this day and age. And they've always been going on. Number one, it's the blurring of boundaries. So if we can blur boundaries between subjective truth and objective truth, between truth versus values, between sex versus gender, if we can blur boundaries, we can then not have to make a statement on anything. Boundaries start to blur, and before you know it, we're looking at the world like it's a Monet painting in just haze and 
fuzz and everything else. Sorry if you like Monet, but um, there's paintings that you just go, there's no stop or end to this. It's just everything blurs into it all. And so guess what? You never really actually have to make a statement of fact or truth. You just get blurred into the mix of it all. And those who actually make a statement of fact or truth are seen as unloving and uncaring. Number two, the power of language. So if you don't like the way a culture is going, you just shift the language, and before you know it, they follow. So if I tell you that hot is cold and cold is hot, and I keep switching it over and over again to you, before you know it, you'll say, how does that feel? And you'll go, I, I, I don't know. It's no different than when you tell kids over and over that time's fun when you're having flies, and one of them said, I can't even remember how it was supposed to go. All right. So what we do is we create words and we change meanings of words to normalize and influence belief. Number three, cultural relativism. Where morality is cultural, not universal. So then truth is just made up by each society. So you say something like this, well, this is the truth for this society and this is where they function in. It's not true outside in other societies. And when cultural relativism takes its firm grip on a society, society then is within moments of being unable to function. And I'll give you an example of this. In World War II, the end of World War II happens and you have all of these crimes that took place all over Europe, mainly done by the Nazi party. Every single thing that these guys in the, during the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi guys were being charged, one of their arguments was we did not break any law in Germany because Germany had passed all these laws to make what they did actually lawful. All right, so it's lawful to kill and to destroy all these people. And so they were standing there as, and the German guys would stand there and say, give me what law I broke of my society. And at that time, we still had, the, we were not culturally relativistic as we are now. They would say there's actually laws that supersede what a society says. They'd call those natural laws, that it's wrong to murder. Even if society says it is, it's still wrong. But if we embrace cultural relativism, we would never be able even to take someone to trial because we'd have to say, well, in your society, it is okay. These things push against us. Because as they start pushing against us, cultural relativism seeps in. They say, well, who am I to say anything to you? Who am I to speak truth into you? Because if society determines these things, the individual determines them, and I'm going to tell you, the Bible's telling us this will collapse. Number four, what is happening is we have the loss of the individual and the universal. So now what is king is identity. You are able to identify with whatever you want to identify with or as, and reality does not matter. And so at the end of it, sadly, all we're seeing, and, we're, and when, we, when we start simplifying these things down to these two groups, society in and of itself cannot continue on for too much longer. When we lose the sense of the individual, the only two groups left are those who are oppressing and those who are being oppressed. Or another way of putting it, the haves versus the have-nots. And these are the things that are pushing against us. And we sit here and say, so what do we do about it? Because these anti-biblical truths that are being taught everywhere are affecting us and our children. And here's what starts to happen. Too many times in the Christian world, we sit here and we watch another documentary about how people are being indoctrinated and we all go, can you believe it? And I don't know how many times I've tried to say this myself, Tim, you need to get over the fact that sinners sin. 
and stop going, can you believe it? Because guess how long this has been happening? Since Genesis chapter three, this is not something new that is happening into our world that the Christian worldview cannot speak truthfully and clearly into. But too many times we wring our hands and say, can you believe this? And so then what we do is we sit around and we'll talk hours with each other about the problem, but never about the solution. And so what I'm calling for us to do as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone and everyone, we have to understand that there's a battle not for our own way of thinking, but for the hearts and minds of our children as well. Because here's what happens. You have to remember this. Soldiers are not trained to sit there and to be able to go, can you believe what the enemy is doing? No, soldiers are trained with weapons to actually do something about it when the enemy does something. They're trained and equipped. And what happens too many times is this. We sit there and we leave the tools of our weaponry on the side and go, can you believe sinners sin? Instead of picking up the tools, the weapons of God's truth and his word and proclaiming truth to those who will listen. So many times we sit on the sidelines and we wonder, well, what's going to happen? One of the reasons the church has become irrelevant is not because the gospel message is irrelevant, is we've allowed it to become irrelevant because we don't speak the truth into the public circle. And what happens then, I'll stop, I'll get off of this a second. And so what happens then is this, we don't start to believe it in our hearts and our minds. And when we don't believe it, it's no different than a kid sitting in a classroom looking at me saying, Tim, if your life isn't changed, why in the world what I want to do, what you're telling me to do. And so, so many times, we start to act and be like the world, and then we say to our kids that Christianity makes a difference, and they say, well, it hasn't made a difference in any of the people's lives that I've watched. Remember G.K. Chesterton quote we said the other day, it's not as if Christianity has been tried and found wanting, as if it's some inadequate idea. He said, Christianity has been tried, found difficult, and then left undone. So when the world pushes back, we collapse. How do we do this? How is this supposed to play out? How do we fight? We fight by this. The text goes on to tell us number two. Be transformed. Pastor Chuck spent a lot of time on this, so I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time on this, but the idea of being transformed is to make a thorough or dramatic change in form, appearance, or character. It's a dramatic change. Uh, another way this word is used, one other spot this word transform is used is actually in Mark 9, 2, and Jesus is, um, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, there you go. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that same word was used, transformed as transfigured. It's a complete and utter change. So when we think through this, we say, what does a transformed life look like? Transformation is not replacing a list of bad behaviors with a new list of good behaviors, so my keeping of the list makes sure I'm transformed. I'm going to explain that again. We don't take the bad list of behaviors we were doing before and then go over and find a new list of behaviors, and I just start doing these behaviors as if that's a transformed life. What a transformed life means is that we go from the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh, to the fruit of the Spirit. 
At one time, we had the works of the flesh. We don't go from the works of the flesh to the works of the Spirit. We go from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. And remember, fruit is something that comes from a tree that is alive and healthy, and it just is what is produced by being in the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, again, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law, meaning that these are able to be produced in abundance, And it's not out of list-keeping. It's out of a heart that has been transformed. And as a heart that is transformed, what comes out? These things. Because freedom is found when we are transformed from bondage of sin to freedom in Christ. And so let's understand what this freedom looks like in a transformed life. Freedom is doing what you love to do if what you love to do is what you ought to do. I'll say that again. Freedom is doing what you love to do if what you love to do is what you ought to do. So I'll give you an example of this is not. If I was in jail, I escaped from jail, three steps out, I go, freedom! Am I really free? No. It's just a matter of time until I'm where? Back in. I'm not free at all. But when you are able to actually do what you love, and that's actually what you ought to be doing, that is where freedom comes. That's why there's freedom in Christ, because now we actually get to do what we what? Ought to do. Because before we were saved, what we did, we should not have done. And now the freedom is, now I actually get to do this. It's a joy that comes from that. The Christian life, though, is one long process of crucifying the old desires by the power of the Holy Spirit and awakening new passions and new desires for God. The Christian life is a long process. It is a day in and a day out process of crucifying old desires by the power of the Holy Spirit and awakening new passions and new desires. Christian living is countercultural. Because the culture is going to be saying, think this way. And God is going to be saying, think this way. In this way is joy, peace, satisfaction, pleasures forevermore. And the world is going to say, no, it's over here. But we know that drinking deep of those is only going to lead to death. So we are asking ourselves, am I living a life that is proving to the next generation that true freedom, true joy is found in Christ? Now, that doesn't mean you live the life perfect. No one lives a perfect life. But what you talk about, what you say, are you living a transformed life or not? How do we live a transformed life? How is this done? Number three, it's done by the renewing of our minds. Titus 3, 5, Paul wrote, Titus here, and as he's writing to Titus, he reminds us again how this plays out. He said, he saved us, meaning God, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This renewing your minds is done by the Spirit. As the Spirit takes the word of God and renews the mind of a believer. Now, My dad was able to, my mom and dad were able to be out here with us for the last two weeks. And when he was out here, um, I was trying to wrap up some of these things. And I said to him, hey, dad, can you help me think through what does renewing your mind mean in like a sentence? Because I seem, you know, I don't want to ramble on about this. And he said, well, let me just give you an illustration. And I said, well, that's helpful. But I I was asking for a sentence. But he said, 
as we're driving, he said, you know, renewing your mind can seem to be like this mystical thing that Christians are supposed to do that you go, what does that actually mean? You know, like practically speaking, what does it mean to renew our mind? And he said, well, let me just tell you how it worked out in your mom and my life. And he said, so he got saved when he was, uh, my mom and him were dating when they got saved and he was going to Penn State at the time. And when he was at Penn State, he said, I used to get angry about stuff and I would just let it rip. Whatever came out of my mouth came out of my mouth. And he said, and your mom was that way too. And I'm going, oh, I gotta talk to her about this. But anyway, and so he was telling me what they were like. And as they started reading God's word, he said, I was reading the Bible one time and I realized God actually has something to say about what I say. And when I, said, when I read that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. If I'm gonna call myself a Christian, I should probably take what he says about language seriously. And he said, I went home and I talked to your mom and said, hey, I read this the other day. And she went, oh, I guess there are, like, I guess what they did, they changed their mind about something because as they read God's word, it illuminated them to say, hey, I sh we shouldn't be doing this. When I get angry, I shouldn't be saying these things. And it's slow, it was a slow, gradual process. And it wasn't like they went from, I read it in the Bible, and now I've got a little halo over my head, and I never say anything bad anymore. It took them time to do that. When we think about the concept of renewing your mind, the part you need to think about in your mind is this. It's a lifelong process. Because the world lives for the moment. The believer lives for eternity. Remember this. As a person thinks... So the person does. Now, that's not 100% true because some of us talk before we think, right? Um, but for the most part, as a person thinks, so the person does. Acts follow thought. As the mind is being renewed, we are able to discern the will of God. And what is the will of God? The text tells us it's good, acceptable, and perfect. The will of God is always what is good. It is always what is best. But what is Satan trying to tell us? From the garden, God doesn't really know better. You do, or I do. Listen to me, not him. That's why Colossians 3.2 tells us to set our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth because it's going to be easy to set ourselves and our sights on the things of this earth. Why? Because they're literally smack dab in front of us. One of the struggles that the Israelite nation had when they came into the land of Canaan, remember they're desert wandering around, they come into the land of Canaan. Who's got all the food? Who's got all the technology? Who's got all the green grass? Who's got all the great grapes? Who's got all the other things? The what? The Canaanites do. What do you think Israel's gonna be tempted to do? Look at all the bells and whistles of the Canaanites and just say, well, if they've got it all, might as well we follow as well. That's why Israel was told over and over and over again, remember, remember, remember. Because there's gonna be days where it's going to look very tempting to go. One of the things that has really changed a lot of my ways of thinking, I came across a guy who was doing a lesson on traps, on animal traps. And uh, growing up on a farm in Pennsylvania, we did a lot of trapping different animals to get them out of the gardens. And when you're trapping, you don't need to put a whole Thanksgiving meal inside the trap. All you need to do is put a small little morsel, and the animal goes in. It doesn't even have to be filling. 
and the animal goes in. I'll give you an example of what we used to do. Raccoons really like marshmallows. We put a marshmallow in there, they go in, they take a bite of the marshmallow, they're trapped. When we come, maybe a couple hours later, and we look at the raccoon, guess what is still not eaten all the way? The marshmallow, because what has the raccoon all of a sudden understood? They're trapped, and the marshmallow has lost any appeal, and it's all about how do we get out of this thing. The world and its way of thinking is incredibly similar to that. What you thought was going to satisfy, when you get to in there, you will find out, boom, it doesn't. It has only trapped you. So when we think of what does it mean to renew our mind, I want us to think in our minds right now about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 in closing here. Isaiah is standing before the throne of God. Before this, though, we, hit, we get a little background. King Uzziah has died. Now there's, there's going to be a change in power. What's the new king going to be look like? What's going to happen over here? What's the world going to look like? Much like we wonder in November, what's the world going to look like, right? And what Isaiah sees during that shift of power of change is he sees the Lord sitting on his throne. He gets a, a view into the heavens of the holiness of God, his character, and the power of God, and how his train, that a king's train used to show his majesty, but his, God's train literally fills the whole room. And we see the power and the grandeur of God. And Isaiah, as he's standing there, all of a sudden he sees all of these things going out, and he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. He sees the greatness of God. He understands who he is. And when he understands that, his mind has definitely been renewed to a newer understanding of who God is. And his response is this. When the call goes out, who will go? Who shall I send? And the surrounding text of that, that call is a call to suffer and to have heartache and sorrow all along the way. But when Isaiah sees the greatness of God, Isaiah's response and his only response after seeing the beauty of God is, here am I, send me. What else would I do? But when our eyes are not set on the things above and they're set on things of earth, we become so earthly minded that we lose focus of the beauty of where God is. That was one of the reasons why I had asked the team to sing the Ancient of Days. Because you have this, at the beginning of this turmoil that's going on under, under on the earth here, right? Nations rage and they come after each other, but what is God? Sitting over all. There was a song that we used to sing when I was little. I don't remember singing it, but I remember the song, so I guess I did sing it, and it went like this. Thinking about the changes that would take place in life. The things I used to do I don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. When we think of the Christian walk, it's as simple as that little ditty there. When we see who God is in his power and his beauty, the things that we used to do, we don't even want to do them anymore because now we can freely follow what God has given us to follow. Because remember, the Spirit sanctifies us by removing corrupt fruit, enabling us to bear the fruits of righteousness. And what are the fruits of righteousness again? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what does a renewed mind look like? It looks like someone who is doing those things, living a life with a heart attitude changed. But... We're going to pray here, and then I'm going to end with a benediction. And the benediction is more of a prayer. 
of David as he, would, as he prays. So let's get to the Lord in prayer first. Dearly Father, give us wisdom to know how we to, are to live in a world that is all around us going the other direction. May we be wise as serpents but harmless as doves as we talk to the world around us, understanding that it is through your truth that gives us boldness, not because we are in some way powerful, but because we are most needy in need of you. May we be vessels fit for your use. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand for the, well, it's, I'm calling it the benediction, but Psalm 139, 23 and 24. May this be our prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. May that be the prayer in our hearts. Now that's a tough prayer, but may that be what's resounding in our minds as we go through this week. You guys are dismissed. Have a good week.